Only the provider and recipient can make sense of it. Security researchers who uncovered the threat earlier this week are particularly worried about the lapse because it went undetected for more than two years. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Chris Oliver. The Fed indicates it's watching hourly wages more than the unemployment rate. Policymakers worried that you might overreact to its new policy on interest rates. Remember the dots? We'll get to that in a minute. Risk markets rally on seeing the latest Fed minutes because it means uh, rates will stay low for longer. Tech companies soar. There's a new problem with encryption technology that just surfaced. You heard that in our news. We'll get you details. And Toyota recalls 6.4 million vehicles. So lots to get through here on Money for Nothing. When it senses that there's been a change, they'll see it in wages. And so the Fed is watching wages, and we all should be. Yeah, that's Tony Crescenzi at PIMCO. He thinks that this year looks actually pretty good. Looks like a decent year. We're all waiting for data to confirm it, and that should keep rates on a slow, very slow upward path. But they haven't moved since last June. It's a remarkably stable trading range for bonds. Boring is back. Boring is back. So we'll take a look at uh, bonds a little bit later. The focus very much on what the rate rise might look like. We are shifting from a focus on the zero rates to what does the trajectory back to a normal rate environment look like once the Fed starts hiking rates. That's John Riding of RDQ Economics. So all that coming up shortly. And Chris is here now to tell you about our featured segments. Uh, this morning, we'll look at China's weakening currency with Patrick Bennett. He's a foreign exchange strategist at CIBC. We'll also check in on China's efforts to get free trade zones up and running in Shanghai and other cities. Joining us for that discussion is Timothy Lam. He's managing director of JLJ, that's a firm in Shanghai. Helen Slavin will also be in our studio to talk about how clothing retailers can tap new technology on what's trending in fashion. Helen is managing director of a firm called WGSN. And we'll get to the Asian markets uh, in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at these latest uh, Fed minutes. Uh, Policymakers worrying that investors would overreact to its new forecasts on interest rates. The dots, the dots appeared to show a more aggressive cycle of increases. The minutes show several participants said that the dot charts overstated the shift in the projections. What does all this mean? Well, it means that the Fed is not as eager to tighten policy, in other words, to raise interest rates, as the dots uh, had seemed to suggest. Remember, the dots were the plots on the graph that policymakers had put down about where they thought growth was going and when they thought interest rates would need to go up. So Bloomberg's Mike McKee was asked if the Fed was in any way backtracking. Well, they're not backpedaling because this all took place before their statement and before Janet Yellen's press conference. But what they found was is that they, they all agreed uh, that they should change their statement language. Now, four times a year, they put out a new economic forecast. And in that forecast, they give their uh, forecast for interest rates. Mm-hmm. And the way the dot charts lined up, those infamous dot charts, it moved up the median forecast for where interest rates would be. And they were concerned and they about were concerned how that would be that perceived. markets would misread that as they were going to raise rates sooner to get to that level. They knew that that would be a problem, but they felt at the time that if they added language to that statement, people would pay attention to the statement instead of the dot charts, 
they were wrong. Yes, they were wrong. People freaked out a bit, and that's why markets sold off. But there was another interesting point uh, learned in these latest minutes, and that was the Fed's focus on wages. We get more on that from Tony Crescenzi. When it senses that there's been a change, they'll see it in wages. And so the Fed is watching wages, and we all should be. And, and so more likely that indicates the Fed would be patient with respect to rates. And sure. so you'd want to watch wages because it's the best gauge. And so the minutes do suggest that that's one of the key things to look at. So this is very interesting. It means that even if unemployment drops a bit, but if wages don't move too much, you'll probably see the Fed keeping interest rates low for longer. All of this was uh, grist for the mill, for the bulls. Uh, Stocks rallied overnight uh, on those minutes. Technology shares gaining the most in two months after the recent torrid sell-off. Alcoa up 3.8% after announcing earnings yesterday. Facebook up more than 7%. In the end, the S&P 500 gained 1.1% to 18.7%. The Nasdaq 100 was up nearly 2%. The Dow increased 181 points to 16,437. So we'll bring our guests in in just a moment. But first, back to Mr. Crescenzi. He's pretty sanguine about this year. We retain our cautiousness with respect to the longer run outlook on growth. There are many factors that will keep it down. In other words, demographic influences and deleveraging and that sort of thing. But we're optimistic for the next year, owing to a number of things. And the biggest one that stands out and the reason why the consensus is at 2.8%, and we agree with it, and we've been at 2%, which has been the right call for a long time. Now we're a little higher. is because of the reduction in fiscal drag. You don't hear about the fiscal cliff or the sequester any longer. These elements will reduce the fiscal drag since they're not here this year by a percentage point. And state and local governments are in great shape too. Households in better shape, companies, banks, etc. So it looks like a decent year. We're all waiting for data to confirm it. And that should keep rates on a slow, very slow upward path. But they haven't moved since last June. It's a remarkably stable trading range for bonds. Boring is back. And all of this has led to rather buoyant uh, Asian markets this morning. The Nikkei is up 190 points, 1.3% at 14,490. In Australia, the ASX 200 up seven points uh, to 5467. We see gains in South Korea up about four tenths of one percent. The dollar is trading at 102.12 yen, so the dollar a little stronger against the yen. The euro 1.385 US dollars. And the Australian dollar has really been on a run of late, you know, coming from 89 cents about three weeks ago to now 93.76 cents. And just one final note. Oil prices moved up $107.98. Bank of America has agreed to pay $772 million to settle charges it duped customers with deceptive credit card practices. B of A is the fifth major U.S. bank to settle over allegations of improper credit card add-on products. The products include identity theft protection and debt cancellation. In, in other news, Toyota is recalling 6.4 million vehicles around the world. The BBC's Rob Young has details. Toyota says it's recalling close to 6.4 million vehicles worldwide. These include its popular RAV4, Yaris and Corolla models produced between 2004 and 2013. There's a problem with the driver's airbag in more than 3 million cases. Toyota warns they may not inflate during a crash. There are also faults with some seats, electronics and starter motors. That could cause a fire. Toyota says it isn't aware of any accidents, injuries or deaths caused by these problems, but drivers are urged to contact a local dealer. 
Gold has moved up to $1,312 an ounce. That's up 660 this morning. And the latest rate for the RMB 6.149. That's the fixing. But the currency has been trading over 620. And we say good morning now to Patrick Bennett, foreign exchange strategist at CIBC. Quite a dance there before we got to you, Patrick. But thank you for waiting patiently. Thank you. Patiently. What did you find interesting in that run? Uh, look, I think the uh, the talk around the Fed is very interesting. Uh, I think the focus on wages is entirely appropriate. Uh, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation is the, is the PCE, and it just hasn't picked up over the last 12 months. Uh, the last times that we've seen the, the PCE, uh, the, that's private capital, uh, private consumption expenditure, expanding at such a slow pace, we've actually had further easing, and now the market has been, or recently was contemplating tightening. Uh, we think that that's been uh, in, you know, entirely premature, and so the move back into, into risk assets, uh, select Asian uh, currencies and, and equity markets doing well is uh, is entirely appropriate. Uh, response. So, so the main takeaway is that uh, it probably will be a bit longer than what we were led to believe by Janet around six month Yellen's comment in the news conference. She spooked us a little bit with that around six months or so. That being the time frame between the end of the tapering and the rise in interest rates, that could be a little longer now. Look, I think absolutely it will be longer. If, if it's shorter, it means the economy is doing well and we should all be happy. But I don't think that's. I certainly don't think that's going to be the case. Uh, yes, I'm sure that uh, that uh, the Chair Yellen uh, regretted that, uh, re- that regretted that statement. As you mentioned, it was the point forecast. Someone said it will be near immediate. Someone said it's going to be in 12 months. The median was around six months. And I th- don't think it was any more uh, elaborate than that. So. Let me ask you a really point-blank question. Would you rather have a better economy uh, and higher rates, or would you rather have a lackluster economy like we see at the moment and low rates? Oh, a better economy and higher rates, absolutely. So even if that's, um, you know, that is good because that means it's better for just about everybody. When the economy does better, people uh, enjoy the benefits. However, it may not necessarily mean that stocks go up. No, look, it may not do. It, uh, I think what will happen is the only reason, or the only reason that uh, we will have for, for rates to go up is if we start to get some inflation, if we start to get some of the excess capacity which is in the economies uh, used up, that will be a good thing. It will mean you know, more people will be able to to find work, and uh, and the economy will be moving along, uh, moving along again. I think we'll then see a rebalancing between uh, between bond markets and, and equities. You know, in reality, if we look at where where uh, equity markets are, and the S and P recently at a record high. If you were to come down, uh, you know, from outer space uh, from a few years ago and, and and know what has happened in the economy in the last few years, then be told the equity markets are at all-time highs. I think there's a, a real disconnect there. Let's talk a little bit about China. The renminbi is the worst performing currency here in Asia this year. The PBOC has effectively made a change. It's not a one-way bet anymore. However, the currency still is, is on the weak side. Uh, does that reflect people's fears about the economy or just the engineering by the authorities? I think primarily it reflects the engineering by the authorities. The speculation, particularly the onshore speculation in, uh, in dollar CNY, was really clouding or complicating the operation of domestic monetary policy. So we've seen those positions squeezed out. We think we're back to very much more neutral levels now. You're quite right, it's the weakest uh, performing currency this year, but I think perspective is, is necessary. It, it's now currently down around 2% year-to-date. It was up 3% last year. It's up 10% since uh, we moved uh, in, in June of 2010. It's up 35% since we came off the uh, you know the fixed exchange rate. So it has been a, a fairly sharp squeeze and certainly relative to what people have expected recently. And I think uh, we're into a period of stability now. 
where economic data will play a greater role. And in that regard, we have the March uh, trade report today, which, which should be interesting. You're not worried about China's economy? Look, I'm not worried. I think uh, China's economy certainly is slowing from a, from a very fast pace. Uh, the Chinese authorities want it, to, want it to slow. They're focusing on uh, quality of growth rather than the quantity of growth. And just by you know, the sheer weight of numbers, you can't continue to expand it uh, at 7 or 8 or even 10% uh, at infinitum. Uh, we believe that we are slowing to a more moderate and more sustainable pace. What about this torrid run in the Australian dollar? Does this indicate uh, good things about China? Does it indicate rising iron ore prices? What does it indicate? Look, it indicates that the, the, the gross underperformance of the Australian dollar that we saw over the last 12 months, we believe it is over. Uh, that was a, that was the case because uh, China's uh, demand for commodities was changing, w- was shifting. We've seen that happen. It was because the mining investment had reached its peak, and, and that's indeed what we've seen as well. We saw the capex numbers a couple of weeks ago, and they were soft, and the market uh, attempted to sell the currency after that. And we were saying, well, no, that's why we were at these weak levels. So the market was uh, indeed correct to take it to those weaker levels. But now we see that, as I say, that that gross underperformance uh, has been completed. We don't see the Australian dollar roaring higher, you know, from these present levels. We have uh, the employment report uh, this morning at, at nine at nine thirty, uh, but we certainly are now biased to be buyers of the Australian dollar rather than uh, sellers, as we have been for the last uh, twelve to fifteen months. And are you still pretty high on the US dollar? Uh, well, the dollar, I think, has well, it's made some strong gains against the yen, against the Australian dollar we just mentioned, uh, against the Canadian dollar. Uh, but I think with an extended period of, uh, of rates being on hold, I think we're going to be fo- we will be focusing more on the on the uh, currencies with strong fundamentals. Uh, in Asia, we like Korea. I just mentioned uh, we like buying weakness in the, in the Australian dollar from from these levels as well. And against all of that, what is your single best investment idea at the men- at the moment? Uh, right now, to be uh, to be long of Korea, uh, we think that the Bank of Korea is uh, is very hawkish. Their forecast for the uh, for the year are, are positive. Uh, we believe that uh, Korea can uh, can stand a stronger currency against the yen, and so we look for levels to be buyers of Korea against Japan uh, and against the dollar. Okay, we've got some other guests waiting patiently. Just one final question, uh, because one of the most volatile areas of late has been this, um, you know, high tech, the internet stocks, the gaming stocks, the uh, uh, the environmental stocks. All, all these had suffered quite a bit, and then two days of gains. Does that continue? Look, I think the, uh, we would be happier with the, the rational response that we saw over the last couple of weeks, which is taking some of the undoubted froth out of these markets. I think we've seen a, a rebound in people covering short positions. So you'd sell the them. You'd continue to sell them. Look, I'd continue not to buy them. Okay. All right, Patrick, thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. after 8 o'clock. Thanks for joining us here on Money for Nothing Radio 3. Just a little pause in the action there, and we'd like to say good morning now to Timothy Lam, Managing Director at JLJ in Shanghai. Uh, Good morning, Timothy. 
Thank, morning, thank, thanks very much for staying with us. Uh, with a lot of um, busy uh, action on the show this morning. Uh, the free trade zone in Shanghai seemingly uh, taking shape now. So we thought it'd be a good time to talk to you. Australia's West Bank uh, Banking Corporation, for instance, announcing that it was setting up a sub-branch in the zone. So one of the first banks to do so. Also, some plans to set up an equity trading platform as early as this year. Does it look like it's gathering a bit of steam or not so much? at in terms of what, you know, how many uh, companies have actually uh, looked at actually entering the, the zone uh, to date. And right now, I think we're at a little over 7,000 companies, and about 600 of those are foreign companies. So even less than 10% of the companies that have actually entered the zone since its inception are actually foreign investors. Um, I, I think really what we're doing is we're, there's still a lot of talk in terms of what the benefits are going to be. The actual implementation rules just simply have not come out for a lot of these different uh, industries. So, yes, they are uh, opening up uh, cross-border RMB usage, also allowing foreign investors to do trading of, uh, of equity uh, and raising equity through the, uh, the zone. But how is this actually going to manifest itself is something that we're still waiting to see. Good morning, Timothy. Has, has the, the mood changed at all? In the last few months, it, uh, there was some cynicism about the free trade zone actually coming to shape. And uh, given that there's been these new developments, are you more optimistic now? Well, I don't, I don't think it will. I think it will certainly come to, to shape. I think it's just a matter of whether or not it's something that, uh, that is geared towards foreign investors or is it something that the, you know, the, the local authorities are using as a way to uh, to try out new reforms. And frankly, this is not a zone that's actually designed to, to focus on foreign investment. It's a way to actually do that. It's really a, a laboratory, essentially, for uh, trying out new reforms. Now, that will have an impact on foreign investment, but ultimately, a lot of the things that you're seeing that initiated in the zone, like uh, you know, abolishing the uh, minimum register capital requirements, is something that's actually happening nationwide. We understand that there are a number of other zones uh, earmarked for the same t- type of treatment. Does it matter how the experiment goes, the lab experiment goes, before they start to roll out uh, further plans on those? Well, I think you're seeing a lot of uh, a bit of city rivalry here. So, uh, you know, certainly it's uh, an issue of, you know, Beijing and some of the other major cities are also concerned that they don't want to miss out on, you know, the potential advantages of having such a zone within their, their areas. So, yes, you've seen uh, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, I think Xiamen and Tianjin have all received uh, at least initial go-ahead to start their, their own free trade zones. Now, how that is essentially going to... Uh, to manifest itself is, again, another question. Um, and is this really going to be something that we're going to remember 10 years ago or from 10 years ten from now? Years you know, hence, you know, yeah. Keep in mind that you know, the SEZ, the Shenzhen Economic Zone, or Special Economic Zone, was not the only other special economic zone of its age or of its time. But uh, most of the other ones, nobody actually remembers. We are seeing a slowing economy now, and uh, further concerns have developed about uh, defaults and things. And you do hear cries for stimulus in some quarters, but a lot of people, just overnight we saw Edmund Phelps, a Nobel laureate, say that uh, stimulus would be the wrong thing to do. Where do you stand on that? Well, it's a good question. I'm not an economist, but from what I've read, there's massive concerns about, uh, you know, uh, just the, the overuse and abuse of credit here. Uh, and the authorities seem to want to actually look at uh, reducing or uh, focusing or refocusing their efforts as opposed to increasing GDP, but the quality of, of, of the GDP here. Uh, and so I think it's actually uh, a good thing. Ultimately, what they are really concerned about is job creation. 
Uh, and as long as that's something that, that continues, then I think uh, you're going to continue to see a focus or a, a refocus from you know, trying to stimulate the, the, uh, the economy by just throwing money at it and looking at other ways to, uh, to, ref- to shift the economy. That's so- an excellent point. Even if growth is slowing, you're not seeing a lot of jobs lost. Hence, the authorities may not feel quite the need to uh, re-stimulate. Right. Uh, particularly so, with uh, all the problems that come with further stimulus, like, you know, they've already got a problem with um, too much aggressive credit extension. And if they uh, stimulate more, that probably means more credit. Exactly. I mean, they've had to bail out how many of the trusts last year. I, I, I think I read an article of over nearly 20 of the trusts last year that had to be bailed out or needed assistance. So, you know, this is something that I think they realize that they're, they, they, they certainly can't continue along this path any longer. They're looking at a, uh, you know, a more pragmatic approach of, of developing the economy. And uh, I think really what that's going to be is a shift towards domestic consumption. What are you most excited about at the moment? I think we're going to see an increase in e-commerce and retail here. I mean, I think you, you, know, you probably remember in November 1st, which is Singles Day here in China, uh, within the first hour you had what, almost a billion dollars in sales, uh, $5 billion altogether U.S. dollars in sales uh, that entire day. Uh, it's a, a massive market that's growing. I think retail is going to probably uh, outstrip the United States in terms of consumption in the next uh, four to five years as well. So I think we're going to see... Uh, more and more companies that are entering the market now that are going to be focused not just on uh, on cheap sourcing or low-cost sourcing within the market, but actually selling products here. All right, Timothy, uh, that's a good segue into my next guest. So I'll let you go on that note. And again, thanks for being patient and hanging in there with us. Uh, we appreciate it. Timothy Lam, Managing Director of JLJ in Shanghai. So we do have Helen Slavin coming up next. But first, this... The Community Care Fund provides a living subsidy for eligible non-public housing, non-CSSA, and low-income households to relieve their financial pressure. All eligible households can submit applications at service units from now until August 29. For details, please visit the fund's website or call 2180-6666. Good morning to you. 25 minutes after 8 o'clock. Money for Nothing here on Radio 3. The next segment, Helen Slavin, Managing Director of WGSN. Ms. Slavin, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, and thank you, too, for being so patient. So retailers, clothing retailers, turning to some new technologies uh, to help them uh, find out what is working with consumers. Now, this is very interesting information, just in time, real information for them. Tell me what your role is in this. So WGSN is the world's leader's trend forecaster we have the uh, the information that we provide translated actually into Japanese Korean and Chinese here so our retailers and our designers have used for many years the fashion inspiration the trends inspiration to help inspire the products they're trying to sell to us you know every day of the week however as we know and as has just been reported the move to online retailing at a global level is massive it's becoming an increasing percentage of turnover and so for retailers 
because they need to know as much information about what's trading now today against their competitors as they need to know what's coming in the future. But do you find these trends to be global in nature that, um, you know, it's the same all around the place? Um, actually, you have a lot of global retailers who are completely disrupting uh, the, the world of retail. So entrants like Zara, who tend to operate the same collections in whatever market they are. So whilst they're regional differences, you can draw quite a lot of trend information from what retailers are doing in a local market. And certainly if you're a local operator, for example, in Australia, a very big design-led place, you need to understand what the global retailers are trying to bring into the store and how you have to react, and also how you're setting up your price architecture. So a number of things with which WGSN uh, and our new data product now creates a platform collecting the data and the product catalogues of online retailers uh, across the major markets and allows retailers to compare how they have their products, what options, what colours they've bought into and how they're marking down. So actually it's effectively a retail trading platform. Let me ask you this. Who actually starts the trends? Uh, well, I think the trends come from... Is it from the brands or is it the, or people? It comes from everywhere. I mean, you, you have the, the macro trends which feed through, so digital, technology, uh, political, everything that, that impacts the long term. But then you also have street, and street becoming increasingly important. So anything from things seen in festivals to things tracked in local market. So you have effectively a long-term view and things which bubble up very, very quickly. And we track it all. And, and what's, what's your business model? How do you actually make money? So we're a subscription service. So we tend to offer subscription to our various intelligence services. So we have the Trend platform and we have over 6,000 clients using that globally. Uh, the in-stock product that I talked about, the data online product, again, is a subscription product. So people pay us on an annual basis to provide continual information. And then when and as needed, we can provide consulting information in the various markets. In clothing retailing at the moment, what are some of the hottest trends? Well, I can give you two, which we're seeing coming through uh, to help brighten up your wardrobe. One is the color yellow. Uh, which we've seen coming through the catwalks and runways uh, from last year. Yeah, that moves fast. I thought it was that sort of purpley thing that uh, was, <laughs> was the hottest color. You need to be looking at yellow, actually. Uh, I'm I've... always behind. <laughs> so uh, J. Crew have it as 7% of their product catalogs at the moment. We're seeing that drop. We're expecting that to move out, though, this uh, spring-summer. The one to watch for, though, is the leather skirt, so featured heavily by Gucci, Trusadi, uh, in the autumn winter collections. So we're seeing that drop already. We've seen 800 options drop uh, for the spring summer ranges and we expect that to continue through to, to winter. So check out that leather. So how are you actually building your business? Um, what's your strategy? The strategy is actually uh, to work regionally. We, we very much understand that whilst we're a global forecaster, uh, the importance is on regional development. So we provide a global platform which then is taken to market by our local region. Here in the region, we have offices in Hong Kong, and then we have a great reseller network across China, Korea, Japan. So down in Australia, do you actually, for instance, then feel the thrust of K-pop? 
Yeah, the uh, the the Australian market uh, has really been impacted actually by the the uh, reduction in duties, and so for the design led uh, retailers, and I was down there in February, we've actually launched, and we are launching a specific Ingstock version where they can track their own local retail retail brands against the global retailers. So uh, it's a big market for us in Australia, and we work very very closely with the fashion retailers there. All right, uh, Helen, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, appreciate it. Good luck with the business, and maybe talk again in six months. Thank you very much. Helen Slavin, Managing Director of WGSN. Money for nothing, and the time is 8.30. So nice program. I'll be away for a couple of weeks. Chris Oliver will be sitting in at the controls. Hope he doesn't crash the plane. Mainly cloudy today. Coastal fog in the morning and at night. Some sunshine expected. Maximum temperature 24. Mainly cloudy in the next couple of days. But then generally fine and warm over the weekend. See you in a couple of weeks. The news with Samantha Butler. Indian election officials are preparing for the start of voting on one of the most important days in the country's general election. The third phase of the polls takes place in more than 90 constituencies in the capital, Delhi, and 13 other states, representing a fifth of the seats in Parliament. The BBC's Andrew North reports from Delhi. India's gargantuan democratic exercise is moving into a new gear, with voting in nearly a fifth of its parliamentary seats, including a host of key targets for the incumbent Congress party and its main opponent, the BJP. Voters in several areas affected by political violence will be making their choices, including in parts of eastern India, where Maoist rebels have threatened to disrupt the polls. Electorally, the most significant areas in contention include Kerala in the south and parts of the critical northern state of Uttar Pradesh. Most high profile is the Delhi capital region, where seven seats are in the frame. The U.S. State Department says the Secretary of State John Kerry has discussed the security situation in eastern Ukraine with the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. A spokesman said during their telephone conversation the two men agreed that a peaceful solution had to be found to end the occupation of several government buildings which have been seized by pro-Russian separatists. In the city of Luhansk, one of the